Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my unfiltered friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we discuss latent means models to conduct group mean comparisons while controlling for measurement error, which gives you more power and more accurate standardized effect size estimates. Along the way, we also mention Ant Raz, Table 8, Naughty Pigs, Crossing the Streams, Big Twinkies, Asbestos, It's a Small World, Churros, 1974 Sweden, My Swedish Coach, Ghosts, The Primrose Path, SAT Level Words, and Humble Pirates. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. So this past weekend, I did something that might have been ill-advised. I'm not sure. Uh, I know that doesn't narrow it down for you. No, we'll add it to the list. (laughs) I went to a wedding, which (laughs) I believe wedding is Latin for super spreader event. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it was a close family member, and it seemed the right thing to do. The wedding was up in Newport, Rhode Island, which is absolutely one of my favorite places on earth. Have you ever been up there? I have not. You must. You simply must go. But anyway, so I was at this wedding, and you've been to plenty of weddings. I know that. I mean, I assume you have, because you've been to a ton of funerals, as I recall. Yeah, they tend to offset each other, (laughs) one for one. It keeps balance in the world. And some are the same event. Uh, So I... Everybody has this one relative, at least one relative. Actually, I'm assuming you have more. It's not exactly a drunkle, but it's that unfiltered older family member who just says whatever. And why do you assume that I have more? I'm just curious. <laughs> it was really just more of a probabilistic statement than anything else. Okay. Well, you're not wrong. I just wanted to be <laughs> defensive about it. So in my case, it is an unfiltered aunt. I am going to change some of the... <laughs> Some of the details here, and this person is not exactly like Roz from Monsters, Inc., who we've used before. I'm watching you, Wazowski. Always watching. But for the purposes of this, I will change the names to, what is it, protect the... To protect yourself from being sued. I think that's <laughs> it. The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. So during the course of this event, which included, of course, you know, the wedding and the reception and a next day brunch, I jotted down some of the gems that happened. In this case, somebody said about the whole engagement to wedding timeline, someone said, wow, that was fast. Didn't they get engaged three months ago? And someone else said, when you know, you know. And someone else sort of alluded to, there's a line at the end of Harry Met Sally. Do you remember? No. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. So this unfiltered aunt said, with regard to this quick timeline for engagement to wedding, must be before she starts showing, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) So it's one of those comments that maybe even you think inside (laughs) your head, but it doesn't actually come out unless you've lost your filter. (laughs) So another one, because you see a lot of family at weddings, someone said, hey, who's Jennifer with? And someone else said, oh, Jennifer remarried. That's her new husband. And then what does the aunt say? Gotta be better than the last one. He was not a looker, let's just say. (laughs) (laughs) And you get all the people around you sort of turning their heads like, did she just say that? And then at the reception, someone asked, you know, oh, how's your dinner? And one person said, the salmon was delicious. But of course the aunt goes... Well, the food was better at the last wedding. (laughs) 
And my favorite one, you know, at the end of this whole thing where family members who don't see each other very often, they're sort of saying goodbye and there's all these things. And someone said, oh, you should come visit us. And then the other person goes, oh, that would be great. And of this aunt in the background, as though she's like a little pop-up video, she goes, it'll never happen. (laughs) (laughs) I just like this little voice of, in many cases, truth, honestly, this little voice of truth that was always in the background, things that you wouldn't say, but that, yeah, maybe have some truth to them. I do have an unfiltered side of the family. and (laughs) (laughs) It's a whole side of the family. The whole side of the family. One of my favorite was I had a beloved elderly aunt who had advanced dementia and I visited home and wanted to go see her. It was kind of a hassle. We needed to trade cars to get me down there and whatnot. And at one point, a loved one told me, oh, let's just skip it and I'll tell her you visited. (laughs) Awesome. So, yes, I come by this honestly. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Honestly is a really good word here because when I think back on some of the things that this person was saying at the wedding, she wasn't wrong. She was actually speaking the truth that none of us say because of social convention, but there was this truth in everything that she said. As I'm sitting there at this event, I got to thinking about how there is this underlying truth and the things that we say around that truth maybe sort of get at what we think, maybe they don't, but they all contain sort of error with regard to this underlying truth. So I was viewing this ant as like the latent variable and all the other things that people said were like those error-laden measures that we use. Huh? What do you think? I think this is why you don't have any friends other than me. (laughs) Your ant is a latent factor and the other people at table eight are indicators? It was table eight. Seriously. (laughs) It's always table eight. It's reviewer two and it's table eight. Come on. Yeah, this is actually what I was thinking, that a lot of the times we have to operationalize things, right? We have to go out and gather something that is supposed to represent motivation, or we gather something that is supposed to represent depression. But in the end, as you and I have said many times before, those are just scores. And those scores are never going to be perfect representations of that underlying truth that we care about. And so that's how I came to be thinking about this. So I like that. If we're going to belabor the analogy, is it's almost as if, well, what if we believe Aunt Roz to exist, but we don't have access to her? So Aunt Roz speaks truth. But if Aunt Roz is not there... <laughs> I assure you a lot of people would agree with the statement that Aunt Roz is not there. <laughs> then we have to induce Aunt Roz from all the fallible things that are being said around Table 8 by the people who remain, right? Is that right? Am I understanding the analogy correctly? I love the torturing of the metaphor. Please keep going. No, that was it. That's all you got. So let me go back to something that we talked about last year. We've actually talked about it many times, but last year we specifically talked about issues related to this in the context of Minova. Maybe you remember that episode? (laughs) That that did involve a funeral. (laughs) So many layers to the tie back. Yeah, I think you took Minova out back and hit it with a shovel, if I remember. We absolutely did. And one of the reasons was that Minova really focused on the measured level, whether it focused on group differences in terms of individual measures, or if we thought about it as focusing on group differences at the aggregate level, right? Some sort of composite of the measured variables. 
it was still operating in that realm that was made up only of the measured variables. When so many times in MANOVA, what we really wanted to do, and you actually said it really nicely in the episode, is we really want to get down to making group types of comparisons at that underlying latent level. MANOVA doesn't do it. ANOVA doesn't do it. They all sort of wish that they could do it, that one day they could grow up and answer questions at that true underlying latent level, but none of them actually does it. Well, it always seems the case that we pretend to have something that we really don't. So whether it be a two-group t-test, we scale it up to ANOVA, MANOVA, ANCOVA, MANCOVA, move into the whole multiple regression model, everything is doing mean comparisons or moving conditional means up and down some line or a curve or whatever it may be that we're doing. Mm -hmm. But when we work with those means, we kind of assume we have Ant Ross. We kind of assume Mm -hmm. that we have that true latent construct, but we don't. We have some flawed estimate of that. And that really works at very deep levels and kind of messing with our inferences that we're able to make. Absolutely. In fact, if you read many articles, you go through the introduction and people will talk about the constructs that they care about, talk about those underlying latent dimensions that they care about. But then when you get to the method section, you realize it's just some crappy measure that they're using. It might not be a crappy measure, but it's as if somehow there's no disconnect. And then you get to the end of the paper and they're making inferences back there at the construct level. What we talked about many times here with regard to structural equation modeling is that one of the key ideas was to try to elevate your ability to understand relations among variables to the construct level, to the level that you actually care about, the level that you theorize about in most of the things that you write. Back in the day when structural equation modeling was invented, a lot of times it was just referred to as covariance structure modeling because it was all about understanding how variables covary, how those variables relate to each other. And I remember one of the first times I taught structural equation modeling, I don't think I even talked about means or, you know, if we write out a regression type equation, I don't think I ever had an intercept in the whole course. And I think there are multiple reasons how that came to be historically. But one of the big ones is in all the kinds of models that you just described, the mean structure is what we call saturated. You estimate as many means in the model as there are means in the sample data, and it's an even swap, and there are no impositions placed on that. You're not putting restrictions on the means. It's not a testable hypothesis. So I think that's a big part of it is, yeah, who cares? A lot of times, if they're X side, they're just going to take on their sample values. If they're Y side, it's just going to be some linear expression of the sample value. And then if you go back in the day to EFA, they're working on correlation matrices, And the items were all standardized, and so there weren't any means anyway. So at the end of the day, nobody kind of cared. Yeah, and if you look at the maximum likelihood fit function that was expressed in terms of moments in the data, there there was no mean vector in there initially, right? It was just the covariance matrix in the sample and the model implied covariance matrix from the population. And it's really beautiful to see in that expression because – The sample matrix is the saturated model, and the model implied matrix represents the restricted model, and you're literally doing a likelihood ratio difference test between those. There's no mean structure in there at all. 
And even if you expand it in a typical model to have mean structure, because it's saturated, it doesn't change that fit function in terms of the overall fit of the model to the data. Yeah. If there are P variables, the variables bring P means to the table, and then the model quickly uses up some portion of those P means for things that are independent or exogenous, and the rest as intercepts for those. So P in and then P out. (laughs) Right. So what I was hoping that we could talk about is questions that actually deal with latent means themselves. So whereas we're usually talking about the extent to which some latent variables relate to each other or the impact that some latent variables have on other latent variables, what about questions of amount? What about those questions about which one of these groups has more, not of a measured variable, but actually of a latent variable? Well, and here's part of the irony is one of the first things anybody learns in their very first intro stat class is the t-test. It's one of the most fundamental methods that you learn in class. And you have the mean of group A, you have the mean of group B. We assume homoscedasticity of the variance, so we pool it. Mm -hmm. We take the difference, we divide by the standard error, and it is explicitly focused on amount. Is one mean larger than the other mean across the two groups? And is that greater than we would expect by chance alone? But then we start building these more complicated models Mm -hmm. and we kind of wander away from that. And there are downstream costs to that, I think. Yeah, obviously the t-test has a ton of assumptions and some of them are standard assumptions that we make in most of the data analyses. But in the t-test, as we commonly practice it, even though you don't need to assume, for example, homogeneity of variance, if you don't assume that, you have to jump through some computational hoops to get some funky degrees of freedom. But one of the main things that bothers me, as it does throughout a lot of the analyses that we do, has to do with the measurement error in our outcome variable. When I'm comparing two groups on some outcome, let's say depression, maybe I have a group that is a control group and a group that's a treatment group, and I'd like to try to understand if there are differences in depression, when I use a score that represents depression, then my ability to have enough power to detect the difference between those groups and to gauge a magnitude of the difference, in particular a standardized magnitude of the difference between those two, measurement error comes in and can mess up the whole thing. So for example, you can figure out the difference in sample size that you need for doing a t-test when you have a perfectly reliable outcome versus an outcome variable that might have 0.8 reliability or 0.7 reliability or 0.5 reliability. And you can literally compute the magnitude of the difference in sample size that you need and start to feel the cost associated with that. And when you do that, you really say, gosh, I wish there were some way that I could get around that particular problem because it's going to cost me big time. Now, with regard to effect size, you know, we often communicate how big an effect is, like a difference between groups, using some version of a standardized effect size, like a Cohen's D. And if you think about the formula for Cohen's D, down there in the denominator is a standardizer. And that standardizer is often, although it doesn't have to be, it's often related to that pooled variance that we compute in a t-test, usually the square root of that pooled variance. So we get this common yardstick to gauge the difference between the means. But to the extent that there's measurement error bloating that, then we're actually going to get an underestimate of the effect that we might have of a given treatment. 
And that can be a real problem for communicating to the world how good a job some particular treatment does. Well, and it's interesting because you're raising a really important point that at least in my anecdotal navigating of the academic world is not always fully understood, Mm -hmm. is people seem to appreciate measurement error. They seem to appreciate that it can reduce power. They seem to appreciate that there can be some dilution of the true score variability. But there's much less discussion about it actually undermining the effect size itself. Yeah, and this is really a focus on the standardized effect size because it's possible to get unbiased estimates of the unstandardized effect size. But oftentimes the metric of your variable is meaningless, right? People don't speak the motivation scale or the depression scale necessarily. And so we switch to this standardized metric. And once you use a standardizer that's bloated by measurement error, it creates a situation which makes it very difficult to compare results across studies. So think about yourself as the meta-analyzer who is trying to gather all the information on studies that have examined this particular treatment and its effect on depression or motivation or whatever it is we might be studying. And imagine for the sake of argument that the effect of this treatment is the same in all of these different studies, but the different studies have used different measures or slightly different populations. And what happens if the reliability of your outcome measure differs across groups, all of these studies are going to report different standardized effect sizes, even though the actual effect in each of these studies is precisely the same. All right, smart guy. (laughs) So you've articulated the problem. Throw me a bone on what we can do to address it. This is your part, actually. I'm out. (laughs) Dude, I'm playing Angry Birds here. (laughs) Okay. It was with the pig. You got the pig there? Those naughty, naughty pigs. Oh, the naughty pigs. Well, here's what we'd like to do. Just like in structural equation modeling, where we build upon like a measured variable regression model, as an example, and elevate it to the latent level, where we have latent predictors, latent outcomes, and then, of course, more involved latent path models. I'd like to do the same thing here. I'd like to talk about ways where we can assess differences between groups, but do it at the latent level, right? Do it at the level of the factor. I don't want the mean difference in depression score. I want the mean difference in underlying depression. I don't want the mean difference in math test score. I want the mean difference in underlying math ability. So we need to try to bump up what we're doing to the level of the factor. And you and I model factors all day long. We do, and yet, at least speaking for myself, rarely, if ever, do I use that as a mechanism to get a better estimate of a mean. With all the wackadoodle, Mm -hmm. silly stuff that we do... At the end of the day, I remain focused on this issue of disattenuating regression coefficients. Mm -hmm. The means are in my models, but for the most part, I then promptly ignore them. (laughs) So what I feel like is this is one of those ghostbusters never cross the streams. There's something very important I forgot to tell you. What? Don't cross the streams. We've got this beautiful foundation by our favorite Irishman of the T-test, yeah. which is this unambiguous comparison of group means. But then we have this structural equation model where we have multiple indicator latent factors to estimate and remove the deleterious effects of measurement error so that we can disattenuate our regression coefficients. Wow. But we ignore the means. Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about is, whoa. 
wait a minute, I can take the cookie and I can take the ice cream <laughs> and I can use a multiple indicator latent factor to get an estimate of this group mean where we can kind of go back to first principles and compare these in a way that we weren't previously able. Absolutely to all of the things that you said. So then a question is, how would we test the difference between two groups in terms of a latent mean? And there are really two ways to go with this. One is doing exactly what any one of us would just make up on our own. After we learned the t-test, we later learned the general linear model where we go, hey, you could just put a dummy variable in front of that y variable and look at you, you're doing a t-test. We could do the same thing in a latent variable model. If we are modeling a factor, and let's say we have data on treatment group and control group, we could just throw a treatment dummy right out in front of that factor, boom, and assess the relation between group membership and that particular latent outcome. Done and done. You want to know about the difference between the two groups? X is going to give it to you. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> it's a little too simple. Hmm. Well, when we do that in the t-test scenario, it makes an assumption about homogeneity of variance. Although in regression, we refer to that as homoscedasticity. We're actually making the same type of assumption in a model where we put a dummy variable or a group code variable out in front of a latent variable. Then we're also making assumptions of homogeneity. But holy cow, are we making assumptions of homogeneity. Every single aspect of your latent variable model, you are assuming to be the same across your, we'll say two groups. We can have more, but we'll say two. That means loadings for the factor assumed to be the same across groups, assumed to be invariant. We're assuming that there are no differences in the measured variables above and beyond the difference in the underlying latent variable. We're even assuming homogeneity of all the error variances across the groups. So this is a whole lot of invariance, a whole lot of homogeneity to try to swallow way more than the t-test. That's a big twinkie. That's exactly right. And if that homogeneity holds, which is the invariance across the two groups, mm -hmm. there are many, many advantages to that over the t-test, but that's a very high price to pay. All parameters are held equal across the two groups except for the factor mean. There is some gamma unit shift mm -hmm. in the conditional mean from moving from group zero to group one. Yes. That is an inferential test on the difference between the means holding all else constant. And I would love that, right? If I have a treatment group and a control group and I want to know about differences in average level of depression as an outcome, I'm not actually wedded to the idea of nailing down depression in either group. I really just want to know about the difference like we do when we move into a general linear model approach to a t-test. But yeah, that is a lot of invariance. And it's just exceedingly rigid. And I would much prefer if we didn't have to make such a strong assumption, especially because we're making assumptions about a lot of parameters that are not directly related to the parameter that we are especially interested in testing. If we go back to when you and I talked about MANOVA, one of the big pills to swallow with MANOVA was that it assumed homogeneity of dispersion, which was that all variances and covariances among all of your measured outcome variables, they were all the same. 
And we're actually making an identical assumption here, even though here we're testing a latent mean and there we're testing a measured composite. Right. And the underlying thread that ties all this together is extensive because if we start from first principles, a t-test is comparing two sample means. We can generalize that to a regression model where we have a binary predictor and a manifest variable outcome. And so regress our dependent variable on the binary predictor, and we get that difference between the two means at the measured level variable. Mm -hmm. Now, what you're doing is scaling that model up where we replace the measured variable with the multiple indicator latent factor. Yeah. But it's just like at the Disneyland that at least you and I went to in the 1970s. (laughs) Right? The one that had leaded paint and Uh no safety on anything. Ah, the asbestos of It's a Small World. <laughs> exactly. At least it never caught fire. We got to pay a ticket for that multiple indicator ride yeah. because now we're going to say, oh, absolutely, dude, go nuts with that. There's just this one little problem. <laughs> Every other parameter in the model is precisely equal. Have fun. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, kids. Try the churros. Exactly. If you're like my mom, be home by the time the street lights come on. That was our summer rule. You got to be home by the time the street lights come on. So here's your multiple indicator latent factor. You can regress it on your binary predictor, but be home before the street lights come on. Explains so much. Um <laughs> So if we, if we go back to the t-test then, you know, we have two ways of approaching the t-test. One is where you do it within the general linear model and you build in this particular predictor. The other is the way we learned about the t-test the very first time. And that is you have a measured mean in your left hand and you have a measured mean in your right hand and you directly compare the magnitude of those particular means. I would love to be able to do something like that in the latent variable world But for everything that we have talked about so far, there's not a mechanism to do that. When we think about this latent mean comparison using a dummy predictor, that is still just riding on the back of how variables covary. Specifically, it's using how a dummy variable covaries with a number of indicators of the latent variable to try to infer how that dummy variable would have to covary with the underlying latent variable. That's all great. That all falls in the zone of covariance structure modeling. But to be able to do what really parallels a t-test, at some point, I am going to have to answer the question, what is the mean of the latent variable for the group in my left hand? What is the mean of the latent variable for the group in my right hand? Or at least, what is the difference between those? And in order to do that, I can't get around the need to start bringing means into my model, right? So we need some clever way to ask a question like the following. Let's imagine I have three indicators of depression for a treatment group and a control group, and I look at the means. That's a weird thing to say, right, for a lot of structural equation modelers because you often don't look at means. But I look at the means for the control group, and I look at the means for the treatment group, and I see that there are some differences between those means. But the operative question is, how different would these two groups have to be on the underlying factor to precipitate the differences in the measured variable means that I can observe? So we're sort of working our way backwards saying, well, if the observed means are that different, how different would the factors have to be? So we need some clever trickery to try to work our way backwards from observed means to latent means. So what do we do? Well, the good news is back in 1974... In Sweden, 
which was like the epicenter for so many critical developments for our world analytically. You know, structural equation modeling was all of about five or six years old, if that. But it was, as we said, it was all covariance structure modeling. And I might have mentioned this story before, but I love it. Carl Jorskog, wait, 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 my Swedish coach told me it's Jarskog, had a student whom we call Dag Sorbom, but again, my Swedish coach said it's Sarabom. Now I have permission to mangle it. Now that I tried once, I'm going to mangle it. The proper pronunciations are Jarskog and Sarbom. Jarskog and Sarbom. I don't know how many times we have to go over this. Alltså, herregud, det här som att jobba med ett barn. Jag trodde att den här snubben skulle vara smart. Jorskog had invented all of covariant structure modeling, basically. And as Sorbonne mentioned to me, he said that Jorskog said, I think you can do this with means too. And there was no mechanism for doing that. And so Sorbonne went off and figured out how to do it with means. And what I mean by do it with means is not just model the variance and covariance moments in the data, but also use models to have implications for the way that the means ought to behave. So in 1974, I think it was in maybe British Journal of Mathematical and Statistical Psychology, I don't actually remember, he created that layer of mean structure modeling that could be fused onto covariance structure modeling to create a much more versatile modeling framework where we could start asking questions directly about amounts of things, and those things included latent variables. I find that to be a brilliant paper, not the least of which is developing something out of nothing. <laughs> so much of what we do is how science works, mm -hmm. which is you add, you expand, you refine. But these guys were working in a vacuum. They were doing a white sheet design on a lot of these models of saying, hey, I got an idea. What if? It's a brilliant paper. It is a brilliant paper, and it really shifts the emphasis from single group models to multiple group models, and then overlays the whole mean thing on top of it. Multiple group models are really just an extension of the fit function that you have for the single group, where you are, you know, you've got fit within group one, fit within group two, fit within group three, and they're all combined more or less proportionally as a function of their relative sample size. So once we get this multiple group fit function and one that allows the mean structure to be incorporated the way Sorbaum had laid out, we can start asking really cool questions about which group has more of this latent factor on average. And that seems to be getting us closer to crossing the streams between <laughs> Gossett and a two-group t-test. Mm -hmm. And your SCOG and this beautiful multiple indicator latent factor. So do it. Cross the streams. How do we get there? <laughs> yeah. We'll cross the streams. Excuse me, Egon. You said crossing the streams was bad. Cross the streams. You're going to endanger us. Not necessarily. There's definitely a very slim chance we'll survive. I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. Let's do it. Well, let's just imagine we have one factor. We could have many factors. Let's imagine we have one factor. And I'll think about it as maybe depression with three measures of depression. You've talked about different indicators of depression before. What were some of the indicators? Oh, just making up a couple of examples on the fly is I no longer have interest in things that I used to be interested in. Mm -hmm. I feel lonely even when I'm around other people. And I feel sad. All right. So people provide responses to each of those three items, presumably on some scale that's long enough for us to lie to ourselves and treat it as continuous. 
but I will wind up getting means out on each of those three items. And I would get means out for a treatment group and means out for a control group. And the T-tester guy in me would say, well, just compare the means on the first item using a T-test and the second item and the third item. And you know what? If I cared about those as individual outcomes, that would be a very reasonable thing to do. But if I care about underlying depression, then I have to model underlying depression. And that means in group one, I have the factor indicated by those three items. And in group two, I have the factor indicated by those three items. And so now the question is, how do I get at the latent means? And it requires us to build in a mean structure. And that mean structure starts with the form of intercepts for each of our measured variables. If I think about measured variable indicator one and write out a regression type equation, measured indicator variable one is a function of the factor. It is a function of the error But it also, if we wrote out a regression equation, would have an intercept. So one of the first pieces of getting a mean structure model into this broader covariance structure framework is to allow our measured variables to have intercepts. And we will have intercepts in the first group for each of our measured variables and intercepts in the second group for each of our measured variables. And I find item intercepts initially a very challenging thing to get your head around. Mm -hmm. And I think it's in part because many of us are first taught the factor model without means and intercepts. (laughs) (laughs) If you go all the way back to Spearman, which was the birth of factor analysis, Mm -hmm. and one of the very first numerical summaries he has in that report is a correlation matrix. A correlation matrix is a covariance matrix of standardized scores. Standardized scores have means of zeros and standard deviations of one, and they're gone. And they proceed to be gone. For 50 years. But the other one is we forget that there's a direct tie of an indicator as it relates to the latent factor as a one predictor regression. So imagine that you have dependent variable Y and you regress it on predictor X. All of us in our sleep know that equation is y equals beta naught Mm -hmm. plus beta 1x. Beta naught is the intercept. And you don't bat an eye at it. What is the model implied mean of the outcome when all predictors are zero, right? We've all been taught that that's the intercept in the regression. But then your eye starts to twitch when you start thinking about an intercept in an indicator Mm -hmm. and say, well, what the heck is that? It's exactly the same thing. Because we're regressing the item on the latent factor, and the regression coefficient is the factor loading, and we have the intercept to the prediction equation that, depending on your notational system, you call tau or nu, but it's exactly the same thing. That's right. In the regression world, we often define the intercept as an amount of a variable when our predictor is zero. In this case, our predictor is a factor. So if someone has a zero amount of the factor, and a zero amount of the factor doesn't mean they got no factor, it just means they fall at the zero point along a factor continuum, then we would expect there to be that amount of the measured variable. So really, this is all about units. It's all about units along the factor continuum and how those relate to what's going on in our measured variable world. Or thinking about it the other way, using what's going on in our measured variable world to give meaning to the units along the factor continuum. I think that what you're describing gives us an opportunity to return to our metric as something that is potentially meaningful and interpretable. It is about metric in the sense that we believe that there is a latent variable continuum out there somewhere. Much as you try to bury it, the truth is out there. 
And we are simply trying to locate where the groups are that we are studying along that continuum because it's that relative metric that we care about, which group is higher and ultimately by how much along the continuum that I care about, which would be the latent continuum. So the way that we do that is in this latent means model. And when we do that, we usually start with, and this is going to seem to undermine the whole damn thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to start with that as a statement and say, what I'm going to say next is going to obviate the prior 33 minutes. (laughs) But please, Hancock, proceed. (laughs) So I have a model for group one and a model for group two. For starters, just sort of building my way up, both of those groups have error variances associated with their measures. So first off, I have no need to constrain the error variances to be equal, as they would have been implicitly done in a model that involves a group code or dummy variable. So there's that. But after that, we typically start by assuming that the loadings that we have, right, the extent to which each measured variable is reflective of the underlying factor, We tend to assume, for starters, that those are invariant across our populations. The loadings are the same. We also tend to assume, for starters anyway, that the intercepts are invariant across those populations. Now again, that sounds like we just painted ourselves back into the same corner, except for the error variances, as we did back in that group code or dummy variable kind of model. But one of the benefits here is that these assumptions are testable to a certain extent. They're testable resting on certain assumptions, but I think it's better than just having to assume by fiat that everything is okay under the hood. And that's a cornerstone of what we try to do in any quantitative application, which is none of us likes to be told what to do, right? That is a universal (laughs) response. That's not just me. But setting that aside... What we want to do is convert an assumption to a testable hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And moving to this framework allows us to make these things a testable hypothesis. That's right. Now, we had a whole episode in season one on invariance testing. And so I don't want to dig all that up. But the gist is here that given certain assumptions, and the assumptions usually involve that we have chosen our scaling variable wisely. You have chosen... The variable whose loading we have set to one to provide scaling to the factor, that that really is a reasonable choice across the groups that we have, then that allows us to be able to do some kind of testing of the other loadings and whether or not they're invariant. Now, in the literature over a number of decades, some people were extremely stringent in their beliefs about what those loadings had to be with regard to invariance in order to proceed to testing other aspects of the factor model, in this case, the latent means, right? Some people would say, oh, all the loadings need to be equal across groups. And then when we get to the intercepts, all the intercepts need to be equal across groups. Were they ghosts? Did they talk like ghosts? I must have missed that line of literature. (laughs) Invariance. I hope those ideas are ghosts now because... That's not actually the case. We don't need to have complete invariance with regard to our loadings, complete invariance with regard to our intercepts to be able to test the latent means. Technically, you need to have a model that is correct. That means that the loadings that are genuinely invariant are okay to be constrained across your groups. 
and the loadings that are genuinely non-invariant, you would not have those constrained across groups because constraining those would <laughs> mess up your ability to test other parameters. And the same is true with these new intercept terms, that in the end, you are modeling their invariance properly. Those things that are invariant are constrained and those things that are not invariant are unconstrained. If you're able to diagnose those issues and get them right with regard to your model, then that frees you up to be able to now move to the latent level where the really cool questions are, which group has more of this latent variable on average? And I think that's a point to highlight is we did an entire episode on invariance and we talked about configural and weak and strong and strict. Mm -hmm. And if you're a glutton for punishment, you can go back and (laughs) listen to that again. But you might be asking, okay, knuckleheads, if you already had an episode about that, why are we talking about it again? And the reason is we're after a different piece of information here. What we focused on there and what we often focus on in these kinds of invariant questions is what minimal levels of invariance do we need to establish so that we can compare variances and covariances? And when we have that condition, those translate into regression coefficients. So can we establish what's called weak invariance that allows us to compare variances and covariances and regression coefficients and look at does one factor predict another and so on? That's weak. And sometimes, and I do this even when I teach, is I say, well, we can go to strong. And what strong invariance is, is we're imposing those equality constraints on the intercepts, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. But what I often will say is, but in many applications, we're not interested in this because we're interested in how one latent factor relates to another. And we don't need strong invariance to establish that. We only need weak invariance. And in lecture, I will say it's certainly possible to test item intercept equality, but in many applications, that's not of interest. But the whole point of this conversation is, no, that is of interest. We don't want to just compare variances and covariances and Mm -hmm. regression coefficients. We want to actually go back to gossip and say, what is the mean in group one and what is the mean in group two and how do those two compare? Yeah, absolutely. And once you get your loading situation sorted out with respect to invariance and you get your intercept situation sorted out with respect to invariance, you can address these questions at the latent level. Now, for reasons of model identification, what we will typically do with the type of model we're talking about right now is we'll designate one of our groups to be a reference group where we will say, your mean is going to be defined to be zero. That doesn't mean we're saying you have none of the factor. That means that wherever you fall along the factor continuum, we are going to designate that as a zero point so that Positive values along the latent continuum mean that there is more of the factor, and negative values mean that there is less of the factor. And so our job then becomes, in the two-group case, to locate where the second group's mean falls on a continuum, where zero represents the location of the mean for that first group. And so we test the latent mean for the second group, and maybe it is statistically significantly positively greater than zero in which case we would infer that that group has more of the factor on average, or maybe it is statistically significantly less than zero, in which case we infer that that group has less of the factor on average relative to the first group. But that's where the action is. That's where we are now testing hypotheses about means at the latent level. All right, so you've led us down the primrose path. (laughs) You've used a lot of SAT-level words. (laughs) 
What's the line out of Pirates of the Caribbean? There are a lot of long words in there, Miss. We're not but humble pirates. It kind of sounds like we're still in the neck of the woods of a tea test. Uh-huh. Does group two have a significantly higher mean than group one does? Tell us where we're ahead of the game. What is all of this buying us? Sure. I will give you three things that it's buying us. I know you like lists. Thing one is we are analytically addressing a question at the level that we care about. Like I said before, we almost always care about things at the construct level. But then if we devolve down to a t-test or devolve down to something whose name ends in OVA, then we're doing questions at the measured level, not at the latent level. So thing one is we've elevated our mean question to the level of the construct where it should have been all along. And you and I and everybody else out there should really want to have that thematic alignment from introduction to analyses to results and discussion and conclusion, right? This helps to do that. That's thing one. Thing two Because we are analyzing this at the latent level, we are getting measurement error out of the system. When we do hypothesis testing on the means of measured variables, those measured variables have error in them. We're doing it at the latent level, that part that's in common with the measured indicators. What that means is that we are going to have more statistical power, or if you want to look at it differently, we are going to be able to have a smaller sample size to be able to detect a particular effect. Who doesn't want to have free power? There's a cost in terms of having to get multiple measures of our outcome, and there's a cost in terms of learning how to do this method, but the payoff is that you get a lot more power or require smaller sample size. Those are good things. So that's thing two. Thing three, if we come back to the effect size that we talked about at the beginning, when I want to talk about how big is the effect from group one to group two, I am now going to do it at the latent level, not at a measured level. That means that I have one of my groups typically with a mean fixed to zero, the other group typically with a mean that is estimated. So I have a difference in those values along the factor continuum, and then I standardize them with some measure of variability on the factor that does not have measurement error from the measured variables. So this in the end becomes what we might think of as a true standardized effect size measure. And if I went back to that example of a meta-analysis where all of those different studies were using a measured variable technique and they all got different effect sizes, not because there were differences in the treatment, but because there were differences in the reliability of the measures that they used, if they had done a technique like we're talking about here, in theory, they would all make their way back to the same effect size. And I think getting an effect size at the level that you actually care about is also important to understand the true magnitude of a treatment effect. Not bad. (laughs) What does it take to please you? (laughs) You are not the first person to say that. Even within the last eight hours, you are not the first person to say that. And given everything that you said, and we're embedded within the full SEM, now we have all the tools that are in that box that are available to us. Oh my gosh, yes. We have the ability to incorporate partially missing data. We have the ability to use robust methods of estimation if we have continuity, but non-normality. We have the ability to model nonlinear relations between the items and the factors if we had 
binary or trichotomous or ordinal items Mm -hmm. and on and on and on. It seems like once we embed this entire question within that SEM framework, we're off to the races. All the benefits of the flexibility of this framework, exactly as you said, right? Even complex data structures, right? We can accommodate those in the background with, for example, design-based corrections and and deal with all of these other things. And if you think about that little t-test all the way back in 1908, it couldn't have handled any of these kinds of things. It was a revolutionary insight that Gossett had that we need to switch to other distributions, but it still made a lot of assumptions about what had to be going on underneath the hood. So when we move to this latent variable framework, we get all of the other benefits of this. And there are plenty of questions that can be addressed that aren't just group comparisons. Hey, which group has more of this latent variable on average? Lots of other questions. First of all, we can extend the mean comparison framework to pretty much any design that you're interested in. We talked about two groups, three groups, four groups, five groups, knock yourself out. You can absolutely do that. You can also simultaneously assess the variances associated with those groups. So you might have very different means, but also very different variances associated with the groups. You get that information here. There's no assumption of homogeneity of variance along the latent continuum. It's unnecessary. So you get richer information. You want to have covariates? You can have latent covariates, better than measured covariates. They get the measurement error out of the system, and so they can do a better job controlling for the things that you're interested in controlling for. You want to embed this in a factorial design? Knock yourself out. You want to embed this within some kind of repeated measure, latent means design. Absolutely. Split plot kind of design. Perfect. But it also allows us to have that mean structure overlay to other models that we care about. There would be no latent growth modeling without the ability to simultaneously model the covariance structure and the mean structure. And an interesting thing, and maybe this is just my own desire for a secure home base, Mm -hmm. picture in your mind's eye your multiple indicator latent factor across two groups that is precisely as you described. But let's impose preposterous conditions where you have factor loadings of one, no measurement errors, (laughs) equal variance of the factors across the two groups. When would you do that? Never. You would never do that. But let's say that you do, and damned if you don't end up back in Gossett's office in 1908 sharing a pint of Guinness (laughs) with him. At room temperature. And saying, dude, a hundred years from now, I can over-engineer this to a point that makes your eyes cross. But your t-test is actually a sub-model within this broader framework. And I like that tie because we can start from Gossett and say, okay, Gossett had to impose these because, hey, guys, let's not lose sight. He was doing this with pencil and paper. That's right. And that's why a lot of these things were imposed. We're going to start with that. And now we can just start to undo things and see, well, do we have to have this? Do we have to have this? Do we have to have this? And so it's just a nice anchor. Yeah, I love that when we think about building the umbrella out further and further and further where the things underneath are special cases. So the t-test is not some other method. It's a part of this ability to model a mean structure in this case, wedded with a covariance structure to give us this broader analytical framework. So I love it. And for people who are out there who say, oh, I do a lot of mean comparisons. I do a lot of comparisons of treatment and control or fancier multi-arm designs, all of those kinds of things. I would encourage you to ask yourself, what is my outcome? 
right? Is it a measured variable? Is the measured variable really the thing I care about? Or is that measured variable meant to be a proxy for something I actually care about? And if so, might there be a way to model this at the latent level? You will get more power. You will get cleaner estimates of effect size. All around, it can just be more informative. And what I particularly like about that is we've talked in prior episodes about this potential disjoint between our theoretical model and our statistical model. And the further those two are apart, the greater that undermines our ability to make valid and reliable inferences about the world around us. And what this is doing is closing that gap. Nice. It makes the theoretical model in which we are talking about the latent construct that much closer to our statistical model, which is attempting to estimate and make inferences about that same level of the construct. So I like that aspect of it as well. Perfect. I love it. So what would Aunt Roz have to say? <laughs> what a bunch of hot air. Somebody get me another martini. <laughs> Have you met my aunt? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, I hope everybody found this a useful topic to complement your ever-growing arsenal of techniques. And we look forward to chatting with you again in the near future about some other cool stuff. Thanks for your time. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, everybody. Take care. Hello, Wazowski. Fun-filled evening planned for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you go to avoid your to-do list, and please leave us a review. You can follow us on Twitter, we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our completely redesigned website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes, searchable playlists, show notes, a portal for contacting us, and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get awesome Quantitude merch to publicly brand yourself a statistical outlier at redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude. When translated into Swedish, it means two ignorant Americans, or into any language for that matter, including English. Regardless, Quantitude has been brought to you by additional insights from Aunt Roz, including... I still don't understand who on earth would voluntarily listen to this podcast. Matt Patrick isn't half as smart as he seems to think he is. Why do you two insist on using cultural references that only someone born in the 1960s would understand? And, I guess, open bar is now a synonym for watered-down martini. Quantitude also receives support from cultural references that only someone born in the 1960s would understand. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? For the good old American life. For the money, for the glory, and for the fun. Mostly for the money. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. You want to serve, soldier? Yes, sir. That's good, son, because you're either serve or fight. You're going to need a bigger boat. Let me see your identification. You don't need to see his identification. Johnny, what can you make out of this? Well, I can make a cap, or a brooch, or pterodactyl. Well, me and the Lord, we got an understanding. We're on a mission from God. I want you to kill every golfer on the course. Check me if I'm wrong, Sandy, but if I kill all the golfers, they're going to lock me up and throw away the key. Are you suggesting coconuts migrate? Not at all. They could be carried. This is most definitely not NPR.